0: Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and performed by Scott Sigler. The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com store. Junkies, welcome to the Gangster episode number sixteen. Hey, we are coming up on Sigler Ascension Day, 2021. That day is always April first. That's the day we put out Ancestor way back when as an indie trade paperback, and that some bitch hit number one on Amazon Sci-Fi and Horrorless. Little indie book out from a little tiny Canadian imprint nobody knew about. We went to the top of the charts. It was also the number two novel. In the world, only behind a Harry Potter book. Those were heady days. That all led to me signing a book deal with Random House, and the rest is history. Every April 1st, we try and do something fun, and this year is no exception, so keep your ears open to this feed, and you'll hear about our fun thing soon enough. As for the rest of the news, tell you the truth, it's kind of the same old, same old. I am on the second draft of GFL Book 6. We are still recording the audiobook of The Stone Wolves, a GFL novel. And the hardcover of the Gangster is almost done in layout, and it will soon go to the printer. And after it goes to the printer and it prints, it will be shipped into your hot little hands, probably in late Q2 of 2020, right around the corner. So you still got time to order your hardcover if you haven't ordered one already. Remember, hardcover pre-orders come with a 24 by 36 inch full color map of the Siglerverse Galaxy in the GFL era, which will be super helpful when the Crypt Book 1 comes out probably in early 2022. A quick note, our supply of hardcovers for GFL Book 6, The Gangster, is dwindling. It's under 70 right now. When they are gone, they are gone forever. Right now, as far as hardcovers go, the only thing we have in stock left, The Gangster and Starter, you want to get those at scottsigler.com shop. And, uh, of course, The Rookie, The All-Pro, The MVP. Those are all sold out in hardcover. It's heady times, heady times. So let me give you the story so far, and then we are going to get into it. Previously on The Gangster. After the attempt on his life at Randall Hospital in New York City, Quentin stays safe in his yacht, the Hypatia, which is in orbit above Earth and under the protection of a Planetary Union warship. He still doesn't know the identity of the woman who killed the assassins that had come for his head. With Chota the Bright and Michael Kimberlin on board the Hypatia, Quentin tries to rehab his arm by enduring the grueling workout regimen of Marcus Diablo, former trainer of intergalactic heavyweight champion Kyle the Heretic North. Ant. Hi, one, I've never seen someone so weak, Diablo said from the comfort of his battered lawn chair. It must be easier to be a pro football player than I thought. You can't even do a handful of push-ups. Sweat dripped off Quentin's face, pulled on the cargo hold deck. He kept his body perfectly flat. Marcus didn't count the wraps if Quentin's butt dropped or rose and dipped down slowly. His arms trembled, as his chest touched the deck before he pushed up yet again. 116, Quentin said. Diablo shook his head in disgust. Look at you, shaking like a bedbug in a Sclorno colony. Pathetic. Give me more. Quentin dipped down again, touched his chest again, fought against the screaming in his shoulders and chest as he came up again. 117. Butt dropped, Diablo said. That one didn't count. Quentin fought against the building rage. He hated this man. Hated him. The cargo hold door swung open. Michael Kimberlin stepped in. Quentin, we have company. Diablo sat up. I told you not to disturb us during training, you hairless gorilla! Big Mike's cheek twitched at the heavy G-specific slur, but he didn't respond. Quentin stood, happy to use the interruption as an excuse to rest his exhausted arms. "'Someone from the GFL? Or is it the Union Police again?' "'It came on a coded channel,' Mike said. "'Whoever she is,
1: she somehow punched into the bridge intercom.'" "'She,' Quentin said. "'Did she give you a name?' "'No. She said she wants to come aboard, see you in person. She said you'd know her,' by the nursing
0: work she did at the hospital. The woman who had saved Quentin, Chodo, Becca, and the baby. She's here? What about the Victory's no-fly zone? Mike shrugged. He looked genuinely mystified.
1: She's in a small, one-sentient ship nearby, waiting for permission to dock. Believe it or not, because I'm not sure I do, I don't think anyone on the Union cruiser even knows her ship is here. She must have some kind of next gen stealth shielding. But the Hypatia detected her? Thanks to the Portath tech, the Hypatia is next, next gen, Mike said. Once the Hypatia locked on her ship, she signaled us. I don't think the Victory detected that, either. Don't ask me how she did all this, because I don't know.
0: Quentin thought about the way the woman had moved, how cold and calculating she'd been almost clinical, about killing three sentients in the span of a few heartbeats. Push-ups ain't gonna do themselves, Marcus said. And since you took your little rest, you're back to zero. Training was important, but not as much as finding out who this woman was. Now that she's near us, Quentin said, could we make her location known to the victory? Mike nodded. I've already set that up. I give the command, our location
1: lock on her ship instantly transfers to the victory. Maybe she's got other tricks up her sleeve, but she'd only have seconds to use them before the warship blows her to pieces. We don't know who this woman is. She might
0: try to take you out. What do you want to do? Mike's reference to Occam's razor came to mind. The simplest answer was that the woman knew if she tried anything dangerous, the Hypatia could call for her instant destruction, which meant, most likely, she didn't intend to try anything dangerous. And then there was the even more obvious logic. If she'd wanted Quentin dead, he would have never left Randall Hospital alive. Maybe she had information on who was behind the attack. Let her dock, Quentin said. I want to hear what she has to say. Diablo, we'll finish the workout later. Finish, the man sneered. You mean start over, not just the push-ups, the entire workout. Quentin groaned. He was paying to be treated like this? Mike didn't want to open up the shuttle bay, as that might cause the victory to come take a closer look. Instead, the woman's stealth ship locked onto the Hypatia's hull access hatch. Chota would meet her there, search her for weapons, while Mike stayed on the bridge, observing her every move, ready to send a message to the victory. Quentin sent Diablo to his quarters, then waited in the salon. Such an oddly elitist thing for Quentin to do, wait in the fancy room while his guard brought in the visitor. Elitist, sure, but also smart. The woman wanted to see Quentin. If she wasn't willing to give up her weapons, then she wouldn't get what she wanted. She entered the salon, Choto right behind her, a leather bag dangling by its strap from his petty palp hand. He recognized her face. No question, this was the woman who had saved his life. Short blonde hair, not exactly styled, not exactly messy. She must have been wearing a brown wig at Randall Hospital. Brown eyes, pale skin. A black T-shirt, arms exposed, pants with no pockets, simple slip-on dock She'd specifically worn clothes with no hiding places, making it easy for Chodo to search her.
1: The human female is unarmed,
0: Chodo said. He raised the bag.
1: She wants to maintain possession of this. There are two hardcover books inside, and a black plastic case with a hypodermic injector and a vial of fluid. I have visually checked the books and also scanned them for hidden material. They appear to be normal. However, if she is skilled enough, she could use the books as a weapon.
0: The woman laughed. You really think I can kill someone with a book? She made a joke of it, yet Quentin had no doubt she could do exactly that. The hypo, he said. That could be poison for all we know. Thin green threads swirled across Chodo's cornea. He was anxious, maybe suspicious.
1: I believe I know what the substance is,
0: the warrior said.
1: It is not harmful to you, but I would like to remove the needles, which she could use as weapons. And I will take the injector as well.
0: The woman smiled, scratched at her scalp. Better be careful, she said. I might use the plastic case to maim your quarterback, right? Chodo's cornea cleared. The woman was mocking him, but he didn't care. Quentin felt a chill, realized the warrior was ready to kill her if ordered to do so. The woman faced Quentin. I saved you both, and your girlfriend. You owe me. All I want you to do is listen. Quentin studied her face. She seemed impassive, distant, as if this encounter were some mundane, boring chore. And if I don't like what you have to say... Doesn't matter to me, the woman said. I was paid pretty to protect you, which I did. Also, getting paid to deliver a message. What you do with that message is not my business nor my concern, you process? Quentin couldn't quite place her dialect. He didn't sense any kind of hostility from her. The woman didn't give a damn about him one way or another. Let her have the bag, he said. Leave all the stuff in it. Chodo handed her the bag. This excuse for a bodyguard goes, she said. He's still limping from when he couldn't do his job proper. Chodo's cornea swirled with red-orange, the shade of shame. Don't be an ass, Quentin said to the woman. He got shot protecting me. The woman looked herself up and down. Funny, I didn't seem to take a bullet. And which of us really protected you? a point that could not be argued. "'I don't want him listening in,' she said. "'Him or any of you people. Give me your word on that, or I won't talk, and—' she tapped her sternum. "'Trust this soul. You want to hear what I have to say.'" Sending Chodo away was foolish. But again, if the woman wanted Quentin dead, he'd already be dead. She could have killed him herself, or she could have sat back and done nothing— while three men with guns filled him full of holes. Chota, wait outside the salon, Quentin said. I'll get you when we're done. The warrior's eyes swirled with black. He glared at the woman, his look promising violence if anything happened to Quentin, but left without another word. He pulled the salon hat shut behind him. Hypatia, Quentin said. Shut off all comms to the salon. Mike's voice came over the speaker film.
1: That is a bad idea. This woman needs to know I'm watching, that I can have the victory turn her ship
0: into splinters. Sound advice, yet Quentin ignored it and trusted his instincts. Sorry, Mike, he said. Hypatia, owner override. Shut off all comms to the salon, now. All salon comms, off. Quentin gestured to the cushy chair to the right of the couch. Have a seat. The woman sat. Quentin sat in the couch. Can I ask your name? I am but an ant, she said, meaningless in the broader horizons of things. My name is nothing. Okay, I'll call you nothing. The woman stared at him and through him at the same time. Not in a sexual way, like Somalia Midori had always looked at him, but rather like he was a slab of cold, dead steak. Call me Pirifor, she said. What nationality is that? I've a job to do, jibe. I'm paid to deliver information, not to chit-chat. He was three times her size, yet she frightened him. Then tell me what you came to tell me. She held up both hands, palms out, and kept them there for a moment, as if to say, I'm not doing anything dangerous. She reached into her bag and pulled out two books, books made out of dead trees, the kind Shoto liked so much. Pyrifor set the books on the coffee table in front of the couch. She'd set them face down, with his spine turned away from him. Quentin couldn't read the titles. My employer wants you among the living, Pyrifor said. She feels you can help her by helping yourself. And who is your employer? Anna Volani. Images of that woman flashed in Quentin's thoughts. Volani dressed in black and metal flake red the colors of her orbiting death, her perfect body, the gorgeous face that hid a darkly reptilian soul. Anna Volani pays you to protect me? Among other things, Pirifor said. Volani supposedly hired this woman to keep Quentin alive, when Quentin had thought the opposite, that Volani might have been the one who'd hired the assassins. That seemed impossible, and yet Pirifor showed no signs of lying. So who paid the hitmen? Don't know, Pierreforce said. I didn't have time to ask him questions. No, she hadn't, because she'd killed them all in seconds. Just because this woman said Velani wasn't behind the attack didn't make that accurate. How did the hitmen know I was going to Randall Hospital? How did you know, for that matter? If I gave away my trade secrets, who would hire me? Just because Velani paid you doesn't mean she didn't also pay those hitmen, Quentin said. They could have been expendable pawns to her. You saved my life so I can be grateful to Velani, So I can owe her a favor? I mean, it's pretty convenient you were in the right place at the right time, don't you think? Been in a lot of places. At a lot of times. Ready to stop asking questions so I can finish this up? She had answers. He knew she did. How had the assassins known he'd be in New York? Had Pierrefour learned about the hit and waited at the clinic, or had she followed Quentin there? If so, how long had she been watching him? Had she been at Hocor's funeral? And why would Volani, of all people, want him alive? Oh, now I get it, he said. She thinks I'll be so grateful that I'll throw the next game we play against OS1. Is that it? You can tell her I don't owe her a thing. And while I'm grateful you saved me, I don't owe you anything, either. Pirifor smirked. Ya owe me, and that's that. Delivering this message won't square the books. But this ain't about me, and it ain't about throwing games. Volani wants you to put Gredok out of commission. This just got better and better. I'm not an assassin. Don't worry, you don't have to kill him. Although if he dies, I doubt Volani will cry herself to sleep that night. This didn't make any sense. She wants me to put Greedock out of commission, but not kill him? Care to elaborate? Pierfor patted the books. The info is in these, apparently. The good parts are highlighted for you. She reached into her bag and brought out a black plastic case. She opened it, held it out for Quinn to see. Inside the case, a form-fitting black interior that held a large hypodermic injector, needles in plastic vials, what looked like a medical scanner, and a glass tube. Inside the tube, a yellow and green substance that looked to be of a consistency somewhere between gel and fluid. Tiny gold flecks sparkled inside, reflecting the salon's overhead lights. Be careful with this, she said, pricey. I was told that if I didn't deliver it to you in one piece, there'd be a contract on me. She still showed no signs of lying, not even a hint of exaggeration. Pyrifor closed the case, set it on the coffee table. Quentin glanced at the case, then back at her. Am I supposed to use that on Greedock or something? She shrugged. Don't know. Vellani said you're smart. Read the books, is my guess. Could Volani really have hired this woman? It seemed impossible. Who are you, lady? I mean, the way you moved, how you found me and all that. I've dealt with some dangerous people. Why do I get the feeling that you're on another level? Pirifor stood. Talent smells talent, perhaps. But I'm of no importance. Just a little ant. He sensed she had said that line before, probably many times. Just a little ant. The phrase seemed to mean more to her than the words themselves would imply. You have information I need, Quentin said. I'll make it worth your while. I'll pay you more than Velani is paying you. You can't afford me. Try me, I'm rich. Pierfor laughed. <laughs> you cute in more ways than one. You don't really understand what rich means. He already had more money in the bank than he could ever spend. Of course I know what it means. Around some, I'm considered tall, Pierreforce said. Am I tall when I stand next to you? He was a foot and a half taller than she was. The simple yet effective analogy instantly brought home something Quentin had never really thought to consider. Just how much... Were Greedock the Splithead and Anna Volani actually worth? How much were the other GFL owners worth? Whether money was the issue or not, she wasn't going to stray from what she'd been paid to do. Quentin gestured to the hypodermic injector. I'm not going to poison Greedock the Splithead. Pyrofor reached down to the coffee table, tapped her finger on the black case. You might consider this self defense. I saw your hospital scans. Y'all done playing football. Once Greedock finds that out, what do you think he'll do? Oh, and by the way, congratulations on the procreations. She knew about his arm. She knew about the baby, and her message was clear. Get Greedock before Greedock gets you and yours. The woman thought Quentin's playing days were over, which meant Villani thought the same thing. So I do what Velani wants, or she tells Greedock about my arm and he does away with me. Is that it? Velani doesn't think Greedock will do away with you. She thinks he'll probably kidnap you and spend months with the torture, maybe years, long enough for your friends playing days to end, for them to be forgotten. Then he'll make you watch while he kills all of them. When the people who care most about you are all dead— Then he'll probably take his eyes, his tongue, and his hands. Then he'll let you go. He'll release you, so you have a long, long time to realize it's your fault that all the people you loved are dead. Quen's mouth felt like he'd eaten a handful of dirt. Ma Tweety. John and Jew. Chodo. Fred, if Greedot could find him. Janine. Becca. The Baby. Has Greedock done something like this before? I delivered my message. I'm done with this conversation. She walked to the hatch, pounded on the metal. Thug, open up! Time for me to go! Chodo opened the hatch. His big body blocking the way, he looked to Quentin. Take her back to her ship, Quentin said. Chodo did as he was told and led Pyrofor away. Alone in the salon, Quentin sat in silence. He'd never met anyone like that woman. She was as comfortable and calm when doing her job as he was on the gridiron. Except that her job, apparently, was to murder people. She'd found him here. She'd slipped past the military escort. If she had done it, so could someone else. It was time to get away from Earth. Go somewhere else, somewhere that no one would know where he, Becca, Choto, and Big Mike were. Quentin picked up the books, read their titles. The first book was titled Species Biology and Football. The second, The Hidden Queens.
2: In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe— Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
3: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice.
0: Written by Coral Chewer The sentient life of our Milky Way galaxy is widely varied and often mysterious. Among the myriad puzzles and seemingly inexplicable paths that evolution has taken to produce self-aware organisms, there are few areas as enigmatic or as secretive as that of the Quith Queen. One of two known sentient eusocial species, the other being the even more mysterious Homo tribus of Earth, colloquially known as the Zeds, the caste based Quith has spread across the galaxy. Driven by demanding leaders, protected by fierce warriors, sustained by enduring workers, the expansionist species has made the Quith Concordia one of the most powerful governments in the galaxy. In addition, millions of resilient, adaptable Quith have emigrated from the Concordia to other systems. Eight separate governments count members of the species as full citizens. Like humans, the Quith easily adapt to a large range of environments. The Quith's biggest competitive advantage, of course, is the ability to ignore radiation that would damage or kill most other sentient races. While any sentient who has spent time in an urban environment has seen leaders, warriors, and workers, almost no one outside of the quith race has seen a female, known by the common descriptor of queen. So secretive is their existence that even most quith have not seen one. Quith biologists, quith anthropologists, and quith scientists of many disciplines support this isolationism. Concordia law makes it illegal to publish any image or movie or create any artistic rendering of a queen. Writing articles about their existence is also illegal. The punishment for these crimes can result in sentences ranging from significant prison time to outright execution. Even the noted quith biologist Zippy the Voracious has refused to write about his species' female cast. The laws against describing queens are so absolute that they extend into scholarship and medicine. There are no publicly available texts on queen biology available in the Concordia. Noted key biologist Cho Ah Hewitty has written extensively that the Quith obsession with keeping females hidden is so strong that it must be hardwired at a genetic level. Cho'a believes that during the Quith's evolutionary ascension to sentience, their planet was an incredibly violent place. Even after the development of intelligence, constant and brutal tribal warfare continued to shape that species' evolution. Cho'a's theory, one born out of extensive analysis of prehistoric anthropological finds, is that all warfare involved the perpetuation of one genetic line by killing the queens of opposing lines. As such, protecting females against all possible attacks or even discovery became a driving force in any successful lineage. The only known visual records of Quith females comes from natural disasters or terrorist attacks where hundreds of sentients die unexpectedly. Occasionally, non-Quith reporters or civilians have taken footage of the aftermath of these scenes and, in doing so, inadvertently captured images of Queens. Who are usually severely damaged from whatever caused the event. When images such as these become known, both the Concordia government and individual quith citizens of other governments will stop at nothing to eliminate all traces of said images. Methods for eliminating images range from payoffs to computer and AI hacking to threats to outright violence. Several journalists have died after refusing to take down all instances of an image. This militant, all-encompassing approach has produced something unthinkable in today's high-tech galaxy. As impossible as it seems, there are few images of deceased Quith Queens, no known images of a fully intact Queen corpse, and zero known images of a healthy Queen. Across the trillions of sentience in the galaxy, a number that includes billions of quith, no one has managed to capture photographic evidence of a female member of that species. Sequential Hermaphroditism All quith are born male. A queen is produced only when a leader ingests a specific hormone, known in the quith language as gibblejuance, which is secreted from quith females. In the egg sac and also upon hatching, The dominant leader sterilizes his broodmates. All workers and warriors, which make up 90% of Quith males, are sterile. Only a fertile leader has the capacity to change genders. While we may never know what genetic factors drove ancient Quith to select certain leaders to become queens, the current criteria focuses almost extensively on success in the fields of commerce, government, science, or the arts. As a whole, the quith species seems to have a better understanding than other races that evolution is an ongoing process, a process that needs to be tended to as one would tend to a particular crop. Where humans, by and large, choose mates based on individual attraction, the quith culture selects only the most successful leaders to become female, part of a conscious, species-wide effort to pass on desirable traits. That selection process is, however, as much of a mystery as the queens themselves. Leaders must publicly declare their intention to undergo the transformation process. In legal transformations, a female must recognize this leader's potential good to the quith race, then provide gibble to said leader. There is also an illegal demand for gibble juance. For some leaders, attaining fame and becoming a breeding partner for a queen is not enough of an attractant. These leaders feel the biological imperative to become queens themselves. If a leader declares his intention to transform but is not selected by a female, he will often resort to purchasing gibble juants on the black market. Some leaders have gone so far as to target an existing queen by kidnapping her, killing most of her progeny, and threatening the rest. The queen is forced to produce the hormone or see her entire genetic line wiped out forever. Whatever method of collection is used, the next step is for the leader to ingest the gibble juance. Once done, the wait begins, and the outcome is anything from guaranteed. After a leader ingests gibeljuants, there are three possible outcomes of the transformation process itself, known as toltephine: No effect, successful gender transition, or death. If there is no effect, the leader remains a leader and suffers no complications. This outcome is presumed to be rare. According to biologists, death is the most frequent result of ingesting gibble The rapid genetic transformation proves so physically taxing that it kills the leader. This is by no means validated science, however, because once gender transition begins, the leader in question is almost never heard from again, either because he dies or he successfully transitions and is then hidden away. Genetically-related quith leaders, workers, and warriors are compelled to move a new queen to a place she will not be seen. Once hidden away, and after a transition period where the leader's former assets are transferred to new owners, the queen may choose a leader mate and begin breeding. So where are all these females? The quith concordia alone includes over 170 billion Quith. Add in the members of that species from areas where quith are also common, such as the Planetary Union and the League of Planets, and the numbers climb as high as 190 billion or more. With that many quith, where, exactly, are the queens? The vast majority of them are hidden away in the Concordia itself. It is assumed to be a rare instance for a queen to exist outside of quith homeworlds or orbital stations. In the isolated instance, Where a successful transition occurs outside of Concordia space, the queen and any quith around her make an immediate and concerted effort to transport her to one of the ten Concordia worlds. However, exceptions are assumed. Civilized space is too vast, and the quith has spread too far to assume there are not breeding queens hidden on non-Concordia worlds. Lack of Rights While spotting a quith queen is difficult, at best, reading quith law is not. Like most civilizations, the laws of the Concordia are clearly posted. Those laws stipulate a disturbing fact. Quith queens are not allowed to own assets of any kind. That statement is as simple and clear as it sounds. There are no exceptions. Quith queens are not allowed to own property or even maintain a bank account. Females are wholly dependent upon the breeding males in their harem. While that seems draconian, quith queens are hardly destitute. They are reportedly cared for extensively and want for nothing. Leaders that are breeding with them, or hope to breed with them, provide for all a queen's needs. If a leader doesn't have the financial means to support a queen the way she wishes to be supported, that leader can be excommunicated from the harem and replaced by another. This practice of, quote, kept procreators, end quote, has incurred much ire among other species. Over the last two centuries, several citizen groups from multiple governments have tried to mount campaigns to change this cultural behavior. The quith of all systems, not just those of the Concordia, have simply ignored these efforts. Biological programming, it seems, can supersede any political ideology. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit ScottSigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg, copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment.